Hello, welcome back to another episode of Under the Radar SFF Books podcast. I'm your host, Blaze, as always, and I'm very delighted to be joined by fantasy and science fiction author Ken Scholes, the author of the Psalm of Isaac series, a five-book series at that, which I finished recently, and it just captured my heart in all of the best ways, the imagination, the originality, the crazy ending that is, um, and I'm delighted to do this deep dive with you. Ken, welcome. Thank you so much, Blaze. I'm delighted to be here. It's been, I think, five years since the final, or maybe, yeah, I think six years since the final book dropped. So it's kind of exciting to come back and see somebody who's just recently experienced that saga all in one big sit down. Yeah, I can only imagine writing this series, all the thoughts that were going through your head, how you wanted to convey it on the page and what the final, uh, what the final book actually looked like. And we have a lot to get into on this uh, full page of notes and i'm sure you have a lot of stuff you want to talk about but we're just going to set the stage for everyone listening uh this is a deep dive episode so we're going to go into spoilers in the later part of the episode the first part we're just going to talk non-spoilers about the series a little bit about the characters the world building a little bit of the magic so on and there's gonna be a clear warning in the middle ish of the episode we're gonna say spoilers spoilers and if you haven't read or finished the series please uh click away, and then hoping you can come back and listen to it at another time. So, Ken, if you're all set, we're ready to get I'm into it. I'm all set. Absolutely. Great. This is exciting. Okay. So, Psalm of Isaac series. Take us back to when you were first constructing this um, five-book series in your mind. How did you pitch this to your publishers? And tell us about the construction you wanted to do with a fantasy and sci-fi genre blender. Well, I didn't I didn't know any of that. So it's an interesting story. The evolution of the Psalms of Isaac actually started with a short story that I was writing for a market that was looking for short stories about mechanical oddities. And I thought, you know, metal men across my life and puppets who come to life have been pretty important. You know, there was uh, Max, or, uh, the runaway robot. There was Tweaky, there was C-3PO, there was the Tin Woodman. Um, and so I just sat down and wrote a story about a bunch of scouts finding a weeping metal man in an impact crater. And I wrote the story and then the market closed ahead of time. So I didn't have a place to really even send it. And at this point in my uh, writing career, I had really just sold maybe a dozen short stories to the small press. And I had just won the Writers of the Future pro sale. And um, crazily enough, right on the heels of Writers of the Future, Shauna McCarthy, who is the editor at Realms of Fantasy, picked up uh, the short story and ran with it. This is where it gets really interesting. This was just a one-off story. I never intended to do much with it. And then I thought, well, maybe someday. Um, but then I, you know, you go Googling yourself as a writer by by the title of your story at some point, because that's the easiest way to see if there's a good review out there or something going on. And back in those days, I used to do the ego Google a lot. Um, I was competing with Ken Scholes, the bridge player. Um, <clears throat> and so I actually was Googling the title of the story, thinking there might be an early review of it out. And I ran across Alan Douglas's artwork, which is called of Metal Men and Scarlet Thread and Dancing with the Sunrise. Same title as my short story. And the second I saw it, uh, and I have it framed on my wall here today, the second I saw it, my mind expanded and I understood that I wasn't just writing one short story. I was going to write four short stories. 
Um, so I wrote the second. I sent it off to Shauna McCarthy thinking, hey, she loved the first one. She'll grab this one. People were saying good things about the first one by the time the second one got to her. But nope, she rejected it. And she wrote a note in the uh, rejection slip saying, go write a novel. I wasn't going to do it because <clears throat> I was a short story writer. I had no interest in writing novels. But then Jay Lake, another science fiction and fantasy author here in Portland, who, really close friend of mine um, and mentor. He's gone now. He passed in 2014. But he and my wife at the time, who I based Jin Lee Tam on as a character in the short stories, they took me to dinner and they dared me to write a novel. They said, take the two short stories you've already written and go write a novel. You could do it. We believe in you. And I was terrified, but I took the dare and Jay promised me that if I finished a rough draft, just a first rough draft before World Fantasy in seven weeks, he would introduce me to all of the professional editors and agents he had met when he was marketing his Mainspring series that Tor picked up. This didn't seem like a bad deal, except for the fact that I didn't believe that I was a novelist and I was convinced that I would write the crappiest novel ever. But what ended up happening is I wrote, I, and I was sure that I had to write at least five or 10 practice novels to write something people would want. But people kind of went apeshit over the first draft of this novel. And <clears throat> so I ended up thinking, well, it's probably a trilogy. And by the time I had an agent within four or five months of writing the first draft, and then I had a publisher within you know, about a year of writing the first draft, I knew that I should probably just decide it's five books and call it good. And so that's really the origin story of the Psalms of Isaac was was accidental dare that I fell into that turned into one, one novel written on a dare and four novels written under contract while dealing with all of the nuances of life. So that's the long, short version. Wow, that's a that's an incredible story. I wish I, my friends would ask me to write a novel on on a dare. Couldn't do it, but <laughs> glad you. You know, I I sent him the first five chapters, thinking he would let me off, and he went nuts over how good it was in his mind. And so I just everybody was cheering me on. I had to keep moving, um, and so I ended up basically I wrote the book between September 11th and October 27th of 2006. And by mid-October, I had a five-book offer from Tor um, the next year. So less than a year, um, and my whole life changed. Um, you know, and so that's that's the that's the origin story uh, of how the Psalms of Isaac came to pass. That's incredible. <laughs> writing a writing a first draft of a first book that fast uh, can't yeah. can imagine the thoughts that were going through your mind for for that. Um, I, I wanted to win the dare, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't blame you. Um, let's talk about the, uh, the titles of each of the books, because the series called the Psalms of Isaac, and then each book in the series, Lamentation, Canticle, Antiphon, Requiem, and Hymn, they're all named after um, songs, like religious types. Yeah, songs. types of sacred literature or sacred music, yes. Yes, um, and religion is very prominent in this series, and as for new readers and readers of old will, will know. Could you go into why you wanted to have the titles like that? um for for the series sure well i mean my roots are um i'm an ex southern baptist minister um who was saturated in evangelicalism and fundamentalism and even a little bit of pentecostalism in my youth and you know wrote 75 or so religious songs as a part of that world and and so you know you've got the hymnal of the wandering army you've got all these different references glossolalia which is speaking in tongues right is, is a reference point in here I, and the way that I write is I just open up the floodgates of my 
sensing organs and just kind of let it all flow in and then let it all flow out. So in processing the life that I was leaving behind slowly, the life of a, you know, kind of a, a very conservative fundamentalist minister in my 20s, that was a very painful, slow journey. And it showed up in all of my fiction, but it's very deep in, I mean, when I, when we get to the, to the knives in the second book, the songs in the back of my mind are, are you washed in the blood, in the soul cleansing blood of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Because folks who wrote those songs, they were they were talking about being covered in somebody's blood. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'm writing not a science fiction or fantasy series. I'm writing an otherworldly biblical epic where instead of uh, angels and demons, they have wizard kings and scientism, uh, scientists, sci you know, philosopher poets and, you know, this whole other kind of world of things going on um, where I have some folks, you know, all of them using religion for their own nefarious means. Um, one group using it to protect people and uh, using a very strict, rigid religious hierarchy. And another, you know, as we develop into it, that's really after the, that more kind of less, you know, that more nonsensical blood stuff. Um, and so, I, I mean, it was just always going to be grounded there. And the Psalms of Isaac, you know, by the time we get to the end, we know what that means. But I was, um, the character of Isaac was drawn from the Old Testament character of Isaac, who, whose name meant laughter. And so I thought a weeping robot named laughter seemed kind of cool. Um, so there's just all these little turning points where my past life and then my history degree, all those other things flooded kind of into the birthing process of this uh, great big huge biblical epic nice tie-in with isaac and the, the laughing madness of of history as you're right exactly yes no i mean it's all if you know when i go back and read this now i can see the trail of the man i've become through the beliefs i have discarded and the love that i've learned to take on um, I mean, I, the series captures a lot of my personal journey, which is wacky because it's a fictional story. But boy, it was also written under great duress um, through some huge life things like the birth of children, the death of parents, uh, all of that. Yeah. And another another part about the the titles, there's always one is this is throughout the five books. I know there's always one line where the tie back to the main title. Um, yeah. I find that very, very interesting because I always got a, a smile from from that. Um, can you just go through why you wanted to put that little, little bit sure. of breadcrumb in there? Well, because I, what I was doing was trying to bring to life, you know, the these and and it, originally the, the name, the titles were Lamentation, Canticle, and Requiem, um, because I thought it would just be a trilogy. And originally, I wasn't even sure, and I thought it was a Lamentation for the Light or a Lamentation for Windwear. I wasn't sure. But I finally settled in on the idea that lamentation, this is, a, this is going to be a story of loss. And in the very, very first book, I tell everybody, Rudolfo saw how a lamentation could become a hymn, and he understood his part in it. And that's the crux of the whole series, right, is, is understanding and how our understanding shifts in the wagon when we experience life and how the way we look at life shifts and changes. So, um, so in Lamentation, you know, that's the big tie. Uh, in Canticle, it's a tie back to the earlier story, uh, Weeping, uh, uh, Weeping Czar Beholds the Fallen Moon, and the song that's mistakenly titled A Canticle for the Fallen Moon in B minor. Um, but it's also the idea of a non-metrical 
a non-mentrical song and it was inspired by the canticle in the simon and garfunkel song scarborough fair uh, war bellows blazing in scarlet battalions is how we got the crimson empress and so uh in in an antiphon an antiphon that was the one title I didn't have. When I told Tor this was five books um, and I was just shooting in the night because I was going to stop it at five. I knew that I could go further and that if it got popular, you know, there'd be some pressure to do that. But I wanted to have a clear ending point of this story and I didn't want it to be too short. So I had to go figure out. I knew right away because of that place in Lamentation. Well, I'll name the last one him. That makes total sense. But I need one more, one more. And, and then I looked it up in sacred uh, music, an antiphon is a response to a canticle or a psalm. And so, aha, well, that I have, it requires a response going all the way through, right? It starts at the end of canticle, and then we get that, that repeat, you know, the, it requires a response. And then, of course, we discover the big surprise of what the antiphon is. Um, but um, Requiem, of course, is a funeral mass, right? And it's the end of things as we know it, supposedly. And then him, of course, is the glorious, you know, finale to the to the big thing. But everywhere. Yeah, it's that whole idea of, of well, grounding people in what I'm trying to say. Right. Because I'm, I'm saying something with each book. I mean, there's a bit at the end of Canticle that I still get weepy about with Rudolfo and his son singing to his son. Right. That's like, I just choked a little just there talking about it. Um, but man, my heart and soul is, in, is buried in this series all through it. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about the the world, a little bit of the world building before we get into any of the characters. So the spoiler free kind of, version of spoiler the world. free, spoiler free version. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a land kind of a f- futuristic and it lived through great destruction, to say, yes, to say the least. Um, we're not going to several get into cataclysms that. that were nearly, uh, you know, humanity ending. Yeah. Um, and then our characters in the world, they're kind of living in like the shadow and the aftermath of that. Could you um, just go into the setting and how you wanted the world to build even before um, like the start of Lamentation, what you wanted, like the, the tone of, for the readers to get you into? You know, it was a short story world. So all I wanted was just enough crunchy bits for people to say, oh, this is cool. Oh, I like this. This is different and unusual. So I didn't go in with a lot of thought. And when I started drafting, I just started drafting. I picked the, the, the first, I decided that ground zero was where each of the four main characters saw the pillar of Windweir on the sky. You know, where were you on the day that Windweir fell um, was, my, was my starting point. I went ahead and moved forward then just unfolding it as I went and letting the world tell me about itself. But I didn't have, I only outlined when I got stuck. And my version of an outline was this bizarre hybrid that I stole from another writer who was a super close friend of mine who's passed on, John Pitts. He used to use a spreadsheet. And I adopted his spreadsheet. His was far more detailed. Mine I used just to kind of show where people were. But the rest of it all, the details, there was never a Bible there was never any world building time or notes. It was very by the seat of my pants. And then any problems, if then there's still problems in there. But, um, you know, I created things like magic the horses, then they can go really fast. Um, And because I really didn't, I'm science fiction like Bradbury was, you know, it's a fantasy 
dressed as science fiction, kind of like the Martian Chronicles, really not science fiction, but it kind of is because it's all it's but it's black box fantasy. Right. So in this case, with Lamentation, I just stayed very much kind of out of it. People bugged me all the way through the first two years or three years of the book being out. Is it fantasy or is it science fiction? I was like, you know, talks about magic, but there's a robot. I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to draw your own conclusions. Um, nobody should be doubting by the time they get to the last book. Um, but, you know, I'm playing with Clark's Law a little. Now I got lost. I got lost on the question, Blaze. No, we were just talking about the world building and the tone oh, yeah. and what you wanted the readers to feel. When it you just pulled it. out of my life. You know, I just pulled it out of my life. I was going for otherworldly biblical epic. As, as the tone you know that's why you see all these weird capitalizations the wizard kings the you know the first captain um i, I was really going for that almost millian you know almost fairy tale you know biblical sort of approach and what would the gospel look like of a world that had wizard kings and a home seeker's dream um so and it's good that you bring up the dreams which um which in the spoiler free version of it um several of our characters not going to go into which ones they have dreams which they they see kind of as a um a future vision a future of what could be of maybe places that they need to to go and they can even interact in somewhat into it could you just go into like the creation of like the dream part of it and how you wanted that to interact with our characters and kind of like the mechanisms for how that came about. sure sure it was still a um, so in that, a lot of my writing is very just intuitive. So when I wrote it in Lamentation, I didn't give a ton of thought to it. But by the time I was finished with Lamentation, I had a pretty clear sense in my mind of where the series was going and what things. And, and I was, humans have a funny way of deciding things are a certain way without having all, you know, like those big but those that scattering of tiny lights up in the sky, those are the campfires of hunters who've gone on ahead of us and they're waiting for us there. That's I mean, plausible. Why not? I mean, that's decent enough for what's but we tend to make things up. Um, and so I was looking at my characters in this setting in a in a world where they have access to an awful lot buried um, and yet have lost, um, you know, their their understanding. And so giving them, uh, you know, kind of that, basically, you know, we see in our, in our religious literature, the sacredness of dreams. Well, I wanted to dress that up in a different way um, and turn it into, I mean, it's almost, a, it's almost a techno thriller, if you think about it. If you think about what Isaac's role is in the story, um, especially in the first book, um, it's kind of technology going differently than intended, um, but it's in a fantasy environment, so... It's kind of, I, I, I'm glad it confused people. <laughs> oh, it did confuse me, but then it kept me going. It's like, I need to know what this means. I need to know, keep pushing towards, towards the end and seeing like how the revelation connects to what the characters are going through. And he did a it's kind of a big job. mystery, but I it think is. the payoff at the, in the last book, I mean, if you don't get all the way to the last book, I think you really lose out because the payoff that we're driving toward from the very first book. Um, I think is um, I don't think it's been done anywhere else, but I, I could be wrong. Uh, I haven't read everything. Um, I also think it's maybe the first series that I'm aware of that's more derived from American fantasies than from like Tolkien. There's not a Tolkien bit to this. There's more Wizard of Oz and um, Tom Clancy. <laughs> so, but 
it's definitely unique and, and original. Well, with that, why don't we talk about the the four characters, primary characters in Lamentation? But before that, let me just give you um, the new listeners the setting of how the book starts, and it's right in the first prologue, so it's not ruining anything. It starts with the the destruction of the religious and glory city of Windweir, big destruction, and the whole plot of the first book is our four characters. Where were they? What what are they doing? when they witness this great destruction and the plot goes from there. So the first character who we, we see is um, Rudolfo, the gypsy King leader of the ninefold forest. Um, he is, you know, riding uh, on his horse he, uh, with his gypsy scouts and he witnesses the great destruction and he has to basically pick up the pieces. How did you like construct Rodolfo uh, in your mind? Because he's known in the book as kind of like uh, kind of like a ladies' man. Um, he's very smooth talker. He's very very smart. Um, he's clear clear main main character. How did you uh, construct him when you were constructing the novel? I mean, well, I mean, he started. He was just a character in a short story that showed up, and I knew that he was a dashing prince. He's the dashing prince. He's the charming dashing prince, but he's middle-aged, has no heir, has never found sustained love, has had dark origin stories, you know, all of these kind of pieces that go with him. Um, I didn't intend to do this, but what I'm told I did is that I took a lot of the tropes that we have in fantasy and I started them one way and then twisted and flipped them up on their heads and did weird things to them. Um, And so he was really intended to be, you know, this kind of the, the, the ninefold forest or the outsiders. They're kind of like the marsh folk but more tolerated um you know because they they produce something that's you know in the world as opposed to the marsh folk who just live up north causing trouble and you know so you know honestly i don't put a lot of thought i'm such i'm a instinctive writer that these feel like people to me and i just know them i mean i could sit down i could write a conversation with rudolfo and it would be accurate to him because he i just understand him and he's how he changed and how he didn't change as a result of his big you know huge adventure and rodolfo and the next character we're going to talk about jin lee tam um Mm -hmm. they have kind of a connection when it comes to like a little bit of the magic that we use in the world the magical powders which Mm -hmm. um can be used for many reasons one of them and a cool cool thing you do is um it can make their scouts uh invisible and they can do like advanced scouting that way this was actually a question of our friend jenny words who got me to continue with this series um what was the inspiration for the magical uh powders uh, in the world um let me think about this for a second it started with knives and thinking that too many fantasies what i loved about dune was the Chris knife and the fact that they recognized close in, you know, sharp close in was the answer, not big long things. You know, Rudolfo uses a rapier because he's a lord, but his scouts all have these knives. And um, so it started with knives and knife work. And then it was what would be helpful, you know, in, I mean, being able to stealth and being able to send scouts in that were magicked with knives that could go in silently and quickly. Um, so it just kind of, it, it unfolded in the same way that I think of, well, what clever thing would humans come up with to kill themselves, kill other humans and stay alive while doing so? And could we imagine being invisible as a thing that would help? And yeah, I mean, I think we're already heading that way with, uh, our, with technology. So. Yeah. And it's not a magic that is everlasting. There are consequences, which you talk about in the yeah. story as well. 
you can overdo it. You can underdo it. You can, they're going to wear out. And, um, and there are rules. Like if you're a, a, a noble, you're not supposed to use them because it's cheating, right? Supposedly. So, um, and I was trying to go with that too, right? We have those kinds of wacky rules in our society that we create for one group, but not another. And so I wanted to kind of give it those, you know, everything I tried to do was, if a person stopped and asked themselves, could this happen? I wanted them to be able to say, yeah, this could happen and be able to keep rolling in the story. Hmm. Awesome. But I didn't want to do more, right? I didn't want to take the time to lay out like five pages of world building because ugh. yeah, it'd be too, it'd be too much. So with that, we have the, our next character who is, I think will be a fan favorite. That's uh Jean Lee Tan. She is, and you know this many times in this, in the series, the 42nd daughter of yeah. Vlad Lee Tam, yeah. um, who we'll talk about later a little bit more in the spoiler section. Um, she is at the beginning of um, the book. She is with um, Seth Burt and she witnesses yeah. the destruction or she doesn't witness. She sees like smoke in the, on the horizon of the destruction of uh, Winweir, and and she's left to pick up the pieces of how this affects what she's tasked to do by her father. And she goes in there. She's very tall. She's very beautiful. She's um, very talented with uh, knives. And she gets she gets brought up into this plot. Jinli Tam, one of my favorite characters. How did this com- this character come about? Well, I um, so my wife at the time was named Jen, and she I'm six foot three. Uh, Rudolfo is based loosely on me. Uh, loosely, I'm not quite as well, maybe I am quite the Lothario. Let's just tell everybody I'm the same type of Lothario as Rudolfo. That can't hurt. Um, you got it. But Jen, Jen, and I were together when this was happening. And when I first wrote it, the character was just intended to be a prop in a short story. And this series, writing these books, and and it forced me out of a hole that I had crawled into where I was afraid to write female characters. I was afraid to write anybody different from me. And uh, Jin Lee Tam initially was just a prop in a short story, but I made her tall because Jen herself was only five, three or five, two, and I'm six, three. So I swapped and I made Rodolfo short and I made, and it, cause I thought, well, what would that, how would that change a dynamic? If Rodolfo's short, she's tall. And um, they only made these little changes along the way. But that was the initial birth point of her. And then when I started the novel, I knew, of course, that she needed to be more than that. Now, it's funny because Jin Lee Tam was the only woman that had a point of view initially when I when I started the series. And as we get deeper into the series, you'll see that more show up. And that's because halfway through the novel... Uh, my wife pulled me aside and said, I have input for you, but I don't know if you want it now or after you finish. And I said, well, would it change how I'm working on the book now? Because I was halfway finished with the first draft. And she said, I think it would. And then she schooled me on how I was writing women. Um, and I wasn't doing it very well. And you can see it in the first half of the book. Actually, all the way through the book, you can find places, I'm sure. And you can still find it throughout my body of work. Um, I was slow to the table in figuring out some of these things. I mean, I was... When I sold my first short story, I was two years removed from the pulpit, maybe three years removed from the pulpit. And I believed a lot of kind of ugly things about people. But anyway, Jin Lee Tam was inspired by my wife at the time. Uh, I, she had this uh, capacity for a f- kind of flexible morality that I wanted to explore in a situation that involved, you know, her being able to go all out. So I started there. Um, 
And then, you know, all of the nuances just evolved. I had no idea what it meant to be the 42nd daughter of Ladley Tam until I started writing Jin Lee Tam. And of course, 42 came from Douglas Adams, right? Um, when my when my wife played softball, uh, she had a jersey that was Jin Lee Tam number 42. So that was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the ne- next one we're going to is uh, Patronus, one yeah. of the more mysterious characters throughout the entire uh, five books. Um, well, it's not really it's not really anything. So when we first meet him, he sees he's actually a fisherman and he sees um, the destruction of Windweir on the on the horizon. He and then we learn about his backstory. Is it do you think it's spoiler to tell like what he was? I mean, we know that he was involved. We gradually discover how deeply he was involved in the end of France in order. But we know that he was deeply involved and has deep had, you know, really cares about what's happened. And I think, I don't know when now, again, you know, it's interesting that we're on this because my agent had me cut a lot out because initially it was straight up revealed. And wow. she said, you know, I think this would be more fun to tease out over a period of time. And so uh, uh, I, it was good. It was the best input into it that I'd had from anybody. Um, okay. So then we'll just let them discover he's d- heavily involved in the annual Fratzian order. And then he realizes once the destruction of the, the Holy city has happened, he needs to pick up and go back to, yep. to this. Um, Patronus is a guy uh, character who very grows on you with each and each book. I found that yeah. especially in Canticle and um, Antiphon. It's kind of, kind of hard to say without spoilers, but what was the, the basis for well, Patronus? I don't know that it's really a spoiler. I mean, I mean, the biggest basis of course, is that I used to be, a minister right, right. in a religious order. And I asked myself what it would be like if I climbed the ranks of that religious order and then saw that religious order seemingly destroy itself. Um, what would my response to that be if I had stayed and invested myself um, and then had fled um, for whatever reasons, had gone and done something different with my life? And would I come back? And, um, and so that was some of it. And then I also worked with a guy named Jerry He's one of the, the J's mentioned in the front of Lamentation that the book's dedicated to. And he was a retired Air Force officer. And he had had these jobs that required vast amounts of, um, you know, uh, leadership and the heavy stuff, right? Airplanes crashing and shit. And, uh, and, and he, then he retired and he took a job working in public procurement. And, uh, and I met him in the office I was working. He was one of the more important mentors in my life, helping me kind of get through writing all of this. He even came with me down to um, Reno for Worldcon when Jay and I presented for the Hugos. Um, did the whole, it was kind of, Jerry's a great guy. And I built Patronus kind of off of him as a template, right? When I have people that I use as a template, sometimes it's just appearance. Sometimes it's, a thought in a moment of what I think they would do in that situation if A and B and C. Um, but whatever it is, eventually somebody might become a template for me. And then, you know, I whoosh, rush them into a Ken Scholes situation. Hmm. He's yeah. one of my, he is one of my favorite characters. And my, of the endings, I, well, I love all the endings for everybody, but his ending I thought was, was um, pretty good. I concur with that. Yeah. And the final one we're going to discuss in the spoiler-free section is um, Neb. Neb, he's a he's a young man. He's first-hand witness to the destruction of Winwer. He's literally right 
right there when he sees its destruction. Um, and then what the ramifications of that are throughout the rest of the series. Um, and then who he meets up with and how his character just impacted it. Just, I was not able to predict anything with Ned. <laughs> Each book, he threw me more for a loop and he just introduced a little snippet here, a kind of a twist there to go up and all the way towards towards the end. So you must have known yeah. right before you start anything, like how big of an impact Neb would have on the story. I did not. Uh, again, so I think a lot of this is, in, it's built in to me. And I think it's built into a lot of us. We just don't know how to access the flow. But for me and my, my style of how I create, he's just a person and he made sense to me. He made total sense for what he'd gone through and what he was experiencing. And even I was being, I didn't know. I, it's like, it's like how a friend tells you one day that they had a tough childhood, and then a couple months later, they tell you about the knives and the dream stones. I mean, that's how, you know, that's how it was with these characters was, you know, I have this sense of it. And then the more I sat with it and wrote them, the more I understood. And so Neb is, he's the child orphan of prophecy that we see in all the, you know, types of stories that show up. But again, twisted on its head. Um, yeah, Neb, okay. I absolutely loved um, as a character, not never to get anything straight with him. So uh, well done with that. And then after we get into before we get into the spoiler free section, there's just a couple of things I want to talk about. You do have shorts of yeah. the of your series that you published. I believe it's on tour.com. Can you just talk about how they tie into um, sure. the main series? And I believe you told me that you, they should be read like in order or like before a certain book yeah i mean so a canticle for the fallen moon is on tour.com and that tells the story of frederico and amalia's ear how they met how they fell in love that becomes you know frederico's bargain um, becomes a part an important part of the series as you read through it so i would say after canticle and before antiphon reading um a weeping czar beholds the fallen moon and then for you know just to see how this because this is a universe that's been morphing and evolving in my head what happened was I was writing a novel and I thought, oh, well, I'll plug it into this universe. And I have a story out there called The Second Gift Given, which, as you read through the series, I start referring to the different gifts given, including The Second Gift Given. And that story is set deep in the past of the series. Um, and so that, you know, that's, a, that's out on Clark's world. Um, I would say that those two are the most important ones. But then in Unbreakable... I think it's Unbreakable 2, but I could be wrong. I'm, I could get the books wrong. There's a story about uh, Rudolfo and Gregoric going to sea with Rafe Merrick when they're young. That's out uh, in, I think, un... I don't remember the actual. It's it's Grim. Uh, Sean Speakman put it out. Uh, and then I have this new Isaac story that's set after the events in him. And Isaac's not the main character, but he, he's in the story um, to fulfill the uh request of the publisher who wanted a new isaac story um but the uh it and that one is coming out in i think it's called robots across the ages and it's edited by robert silverberg and brian thomas schmidt um and i think that's coming out this summer but that's definitely a part of you know the after story awesome and um just before we go into i suppose i just want to give my two cents about uh, reading um, the series. So I first picked up Lamentation uh, many years ago. I think it was like five or six years ago. And I read it and I actually very much liked it. 
but I felt after reading it, I didn't know where the series was going. It kind of, kind of like a question whether I wanted to continue. And then a good friend of mine, Jenny work, she said, pick up the, the sequel. You'll absolutely love it. Uh, you'll not gonna be able to anticipate anything that Ken puts into the series. So I bought the rest of the series and I did. And Canticle. Oh, it's, it's probably my favorite book in the series from beginning to end. It just absolutely loved it. So if you have a similar feeling that, that I did after reading Lamentation, pick up Canticle. I promise that you will um, feel the same way I did. And you just wonder of how, uh, what you do, what you take it with the, with the series, Ken. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of mail about uh, Canticle and some scenes we're going to get into in the spoiler yeah. section for sure. Totally. Yeah, I did. I got some. I got one pretty good. It was hate mail and fan mail all combined. But Canticle is near and dear to me as well. Canticle is the only one that I started without any pressure, without a contract. I was working. I was halfway through Canticle just writing it because I knew it needed to be written when I got the book deal. And, uh, you know, I would like to be one of those people who say, well, you know, a five book contract, that's not going to change anything. Yeah, it does. It's, it changes how you look at things. It changes all kinds of things. Like, just like having babies and burying parents changes things. But uh, Canticle is near and dear to my heart, too. Yeah. Well, they all are because they all became they're all my paper children now. <laughs> Great. And just one final mini warning that the series starts off uh, like fantasy sci fi mixed very much like in the kind of like a little bit of a classical sense. And it does get darker as the series goes on. So if you're a reader who um, is a little bit queasy about um, like dark or grim dark, just be forewarned that it does go down that path. I don't want anyone to be as shocked about it uh, if you continue. So, all right. I think we're at the point where we're about to go into uh, spoiler sections. So for those of you who have not picked up Lamentation or finished the series, unfortunately, this is where we depart. Please consider picking up and leaving a review. There's also audiobooks out for the series, um, I believe. Uh, yep. and they are, they're done very, very well. So feel free to check it out that way. So once again, spoiler warning, we're going to go into spoilers in three, two, one. All right, here we are. So it's I got to start. It's science fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah sorry. it's science. It's science fiction. <laughs> I kind of consider it like, uh, well, not in the sense of Dune because Dune is, um, it's science fiction, but it takes place in like a fantasy type world yeah. that's why i love dune so much yeah me too and dune was an influence on this i think um that sense of majesty you know the orange catholic bible that just the orange catholic bible that's just so freaking cool right off the bat right it's very crunchy as jay would say <laughs> awesome yeah so i have to start with with canticle i gotta yeah. start with the dark 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 scene so, oh, yeah. to refresh uh, you, so you guys are listening. You've already read this, so I'll just set the scene. Vlad Litam is uh, captured. He's captured by uh, Rhea, and he is brought into, and uh, he is basically, he's not himself tortured, but he witnesses the um, cutting. It's called, kin, I believe it's called kin healing of all of his children and his grandchildren. He's witnessing it, and he is just shattered and and destroyed um, mentally, physically, and we find out the ramifications for why they're doing the kin healing at the end of Canticle, which is why it's such a fantastic book. And I'm gonna, we're probably gonna go through most most of that today. What made you want to turn to like a very very grim um, book, and how did this one scene set up 
the rest of rest of the series. I know how, but for to refresh people's memory. Yeah, yeah. I um, I mean, we meet we meet the shadowy Azirites that we don't know about in Lamentation, right? We don't understand that there's, you know, we learn at the end of Lamentation and Patronus goes off to try and sort this out. Vlad goes off to try and sort this out, trying to figure out what's this threat against the named lands that's come from outside the named lands, apparently. And they're, they're aware of themselves as the only people left in the world. So it's a little disconcerting. Um, to discover that they're not alone. And um, and the Azirites are following a patriarchal sort of um, a kind of Old Testament type of, I mean, it's bloodletting, right? You, you're going to be saved by the blood. And except in this case, I'm using an Old Testament, uh, I will write my words on your heart, um, was, the, was the, uh, I think, one of the prophets um, that talks about God writing onto our hearts. Uh, and I thought, well, that's not a stretch to think that people could just, I mean, do we already have ritualistic cuttings that we do to people for their faith? Yeah. So could we have a, could I see a faith where people uh, see the knife and the, you know, the carving and the kin healing as a, as a path. So that's where it started. And um, you know, and then it just kind of went from there, but it was totally, you know, I'm going, I'm hearkening back to old, old timey gospel songs, you know, showers of blessing. Are you washed in the blood? Uh, you know, all of the old timey blood sacrifice stuff from my old belief system. So, and we see the ramifications for Vlad witnessing this. And it's a very important line in the series. You say, from your pain, build an army. And boy, yep, does I will, he build... I will build my army. Yep, from my pain, I will build an army. I'll build an army from my pain. And, you know, yeah. I think that I'm talking, you know, in that really about people go two different ways when they're experiencing extreme trauma. They either go in the direction of burning down the world or they go in the direction of burning down themselves and coming back as something better, stronger, newer. And he goes a little bit down that first road, uh, a little bit for about four books. Um, Just yeah. a little bit. Yeah, uh, building it. But he was taking his pain and turning it into an army that would serve him. Yeah. And he oh, definitely in Requiem, I felt the, the damn destruction that he was causing oh my goodness oh and i oh. got into a i got into a little bit of a thing with the end of requiem i had a first reader who thought that and we're on the we can talk spoilers now right i could just go ahead and unspoil it all okay good um i had i had a first reader who told me that the only way this could be a believable series was if he actually killed the children and i knew at that moment that there's no freaking way that that's the that would be right, and that at that moment I knew that I trusted my writing instinct more than that person, um, because I knew that it had to be a fake Aru, and that people, because he had changed enough, but he, there had to be a fake Aru so that ever because he's I mean he, talk about a vast manipulation causing deep suffering. I um, Vlad is he's one of my favorite characters. He's also kind of. He's all the worst impulses of the family of origin that I grew up in. You know, what a person will do when they're backed into the corner with enough, uh, with enough, and they're given the power to make it different. Vlad. Um, <laughs> his, and his uh, ending is fabulous. I mean, even though it's dark, his ending is a Vladly Tam ending. Loved everything about Vlad, even if I wanted to, wanted to punch him occasionally from yeah, time too. to time. Me too. I hate what he did to his kids, man. Um, what, what he did to his kids, especially yeah, the world. Jin. 
especially yeah. Jin Lee and and, yeah. and Requiem. That just wow. Oh yeah. Oh god. We can talk for hours about Vlad and uh. the implications from that. Um, again, we were talking about the um, the dreams in the non-spoiler section, mm-hmm. but we'll get, I want to get more into it. Oh, so yeah. it's technology. It, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, if 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 folks just roll back Clark's law that the advanced technology um, is going to appear to be magic to a less advanced uh, society, these are humans who have forgotten who they are, and um, and so they they find these bits of technology that do these amazing things, and they think that it's it's magic, you know, powders that make you disappear if they're all mixed up the right way. Well, we have things that we mix up here on the earth that create medicines and do all kinds of. We would there are people who would think that was magic um in the right circumstances and so um so yeah the dream stone and the, the, you know the fact that they had large enough dream stones that they could transmit into the dreams of anybody uh if they had a, a more a powerful enough megaphone right a powerful enough mechanical oddity to to amplify the signal you could maybe even get it to the moon yeah that's an, another thing we're going to talk about the, the introduction of the moon but on the dreams part so yeah. towards the the end of lamentation, we um, Neb also and uh, Winter, or Winters, who we get main po- point of view characters in Canticle. We notice that they are sharing the same, the same dream, um, and as you read the series, that that comes to fruition in in him. But it's the getting to that part that is always the mystery. And I found it interesting with the dreams. Like unless you have, I believe, if you have like a dream stone. Um, for humans, I don't, you can't witness the dream, but the mechanical servants they can. So that's one because the they have dreamstones built into them. They have them. it's yeah. part of their technology, and I know right. that, but not everybody else necessarily does. Right. So that's one of the connections that uh, Winters has with Neb and also um, Isaac, who we're going to talk about Isaac all all the much. So that's something that's a bond that they share um, throughout throughout the series in um, Canticle when they split and even an antiphon when when neb has his big event and he comes to join so that's always something connecting them kind of kind of like a sixth sense did you um did you always know that that the dreams was going to be like that with neb and uh, winter i knew after the first whenever it was that i introduced the dream stones in the waste i think is in canticle that's what that's when i realized a lot of what happened was i went back over lamentation and said well now how am i going to explain that well how am i going to explain i didn't intend for this to turn into a five book series i intended for it to be half a novel that i was going to abandon when jay figured out how rotten i was at writing novels and um and so i didn't do any of that stuff to make it consistent and then what i did at the end of it all since i knew what i was telling i knew this was a secular human story i knew that all supernatural elements were just unexplainable technology i knew that humanity had lost its identity on purpose because a group of humans had decided that we were done we'd had our time and we couldn't seem to get it right and so we are going to stop right here at last home uh, we had a first home where we can a red dwarf long time ago. There's a story about it. And then we have last home, which is the end of millions of years of human expansion through space. And this is the last pocket of human survivors because, you know, you, you, nobody wants to live forever. Except Yazir decided, you know, or somebody decided to start it back up again. And then Yazir decided, no, we're not. We're going to stick with that. And so there's this whole down under war. Um, but my humans, uh, you know, they just have lost all connection with who they are with this this world that was shaped by them for them 
and set up in advance for them, like all of the rest of the um, the continuity engine of the Elder Gods, which is what they call it. But that's just whatever the machine is, the ancient machine that continues to seed new human worlds, finds a world that's a lot like the first home with a moon. If And then they terraform the moon as a nice touch to remind everybody of first home and its terraformed moon and you know from the olden times and it's you know it's you know you go sailing uh, on your new special planet and you end up on the moon because you pass through the seaway and there's a teleportation i mean it's it's humanity kind of at it's almost a cordwainer smith end of the end of time kind of humanity if that makes any kind of sense but so all of its lazy you know technology they find and they're able to use um to get where they want to go yeah and then we find out at the end of Antiphon that the Antiphon is actually a ship that transports them to the moon. Yeah. And they, going they back t- to the moon. Going back to the moon. To the is that the first- Have you ever run across a moon launch in what was pitched as an epic fantasy series before? I have not. So I felt not like this knowledge. was not. No. Yeah, I don't remember anything. And the, I, I felt like that came together pretty nicely with that whole, at the end, the surprise factor of, oh, my goodness, the Antiphon's a rocket ship. Um, they're going to the moon. So. <laughs> Yeah, that was definitely original. Never never thought you would take it like that. Well, I mean, there are hints in uh, Canticle about mm-hmm. the moon. Um, yeah, and that think... there was a ship that sailed the moon at one point. And I mean, I think that I have the mythology is in there. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, because originally I had been dared to write a novel by another editor named Sean Wallace. And he wanted me to do something weird. And I had conceived and outlined a whole little short novel called uh Philip Carnelian and the ship that sailed the moon being uh and, and so that and so what I ended up doing and, he, and that has the whole reference to the home seeker and all of that stuff in it so I cribbed that and I dropped it into my series um to expand out around Neb's storyline and Winter's storyline and um and then I ended up using some of that in my Weeping Czar story um but yeah I had so I had little bits of old world where this has been I wrote a story called George 7 when I was in, man, maybe high school, about a metal man sent ahead to terraform a planet. I mean, that's the beginnings of the Psalms of Isaac, and I didn't know it. So, little little hints for f- for future yeah. endeavors. Yeah, all these things growing in the story garden, and then when you go out to harvest, you just scoop it up. Exactly. Well, we've been talking about um, the Psalms of Isaac for the whole time. When we actually talk about Isaac, he, even though he is uh, a secondary character, I always felt that he was, especially later in the story, especially uh, Antiphon, uh, towards the end, uh, he's basically a main character. He to is. Me. I mean, he's he absolutely is the main character. And one of the tricks is that I never let him have a point of view. Why um, was that? Uh, for exactly that reason, because he's the main character and we don't want to see in his head. I don't want anybody to look in Isaac's head and know what he knows. Um, I wanted this, us to see him from outside. He is the he is the he didn't want to be a real boy. He was content to be a, a mecho servitor. And and because he was co-opted for these other uses, it changed him and it put him into the midst of a much bigger saga. Um, you know, and, and at the end of it all. We learn that the Psalms of Isaac are the people whose lives have been changed and touched around him and that he um, he's been this central figure in their lives from the time they found him, um, you know, through it. So it's uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they made the choice to to not even show us him until the last book. And then they put Isaac on the cover of the last book, which I loved. I thought that was really good. 
um, since it's the series is totally it's his series. It's the Psalms of Isaac. Um, but yeah. we never get in his head. And I don't I, I when I had that's the trick with this story I had to write was I had to write a story with another main character who plays off of Isaac, because my one thing is that I'm not going to write anything ever in Isaac's point of view. That's my my gift to myself is that Isaac gets to stay um, mysterious that way. Yeah, and I'm looking at the cover. Yeah, to him. it's probably the best cover in the series, in my opinion. I just love I, it. Yeah, yeah, I'm partial to it. That's my favorite of the Chris McGrath covers, and uh, and then my, you know, the two the two uh, Greg Manchester covers are are among my favorites. All of the French covers of the well, the French put out the first three. They're pretty amazing too. You get you get a great shot of the Moon Wizard's ladder on Antiphon in the French version. Oh, I got to take a and look. They did at that. a great job of capturing the way I saw it. So I thought that was pretty cool. So you got to the end of this thing, and my big aha, the hugest aha ever, Neb up on top of the tower. It got, I mean, I got you there, and you hadn't quite figured it out yet. Or had you, did you know it was coming when you got to the top of the tower? I, I thought I saw hints of it, but I was definitely blown away uh with what you constructed in in the ending with the with him in general let me let me say this uh from beginning to end there was so much i felt packed into it oh yeah um, that it's I didn't a longer see. book than the others too yeah it's, it's a longer like, book a, you even do something yeah. different in this book that you didn't do for the rest of the series normally for each chapter you put in like three viewpoints in the fourth you start to do four so i could tell that yeah. there was a lot of information you needed to get into this yeah. um book in general i just got to ask did you feel like there was a lot of loose ends you needed to tie up into this uh first book or like i just wanted to just pick your well brain i knew that i wanted it. to tie up loose ends because i knew that i was not going to write a sixth book um, I, I knew that this had an ending point and the original ending point, it was Isaac waiting for his friend to come home. But, um, my editor, Beth, who's an amazing editor, she, she said, you know, if you end it with Neb and Winters instead, still have your eyes at your Rudolfo ending, but have Neb and Winters be the real ending. Then you have an arrow pointing to the future. And so this all had a fixed end point. And so I knew that the book had to be long enough to contain all the different pieces, um, I knew that I was moving new players onto the field that, you know, the idea being that if a person gets halfway into him and they think about it, it's like, well, no, this is kind of, they've been around this whole time doing this. And I just didn't know, um, you know what? I didn't either. Um, I didn't know about new Aspira until probably deep into Requiem. Um, and then I, and then it made sense to me that of course, Frederico took the last of his people and set them up somewhere where they could live and monitor this bargain he had made. Right. Um, and so, uh, and that's a, see the whole thing around Frederico's bargain is a whole other series that I could write someday if I want to. Um, and the same is true with the previous generation, Rudolfo's dad, Lord Jacob, and, you know, that whole generation, how they came to make this deal with the devil, um, you know, all the different things that I could do. And then I also already have in development, a series of novellas called the Pilgrim of the Pilgrims of the dream. Um, and the first one is, um, do you remember when Vlad's on the yacht? And he jumps in after Mal to go down to the Behem into Behemoth. That's and in he's, Antiphon, right? It's in Antiphon, and he's with a couple of his kids that have also they're also hiding there. And then we never hear from those kids again, right? The Tam, the Tams that were on the Yazirite vessel. Well, the Pilgrims of the Dream picks up with one of those Tams um, after the fall of Yazir, 
and she's on a boat with a bunch of lunarists and surviving Yazirites heading to start a new life on the moon. And so I have a series of novellas that I'm intending to write at some point that'll take me back into that world. But I'm not I'm not hugely anxious to write long form these days. You know, I'm, I never wanted to write novels. I was a short story guy. Um, it this kind of happened on an accident that I'm happy about. But well, maybe you can split the difference. Do do novellas right? instead? <laughs> I think so. We'll see. I mean, I could see a resurgence happening where people showed up wanting more of this, and I would say, well, yeah. I mean, my brain starts thinking, well, how do I please my my readers? But right now, I've been focusing on other things, you know, nonfiction and kind of getting all getting my music captured finally, because I also have all this music. And now I'm starting to write like I'm, I've started writing a song called A Lamentation for the Light. Where were you when when uh, on the day that Wind Weir fell? Um, so I'm starting to do tie in music to my series that I think will be useful at some point. But awesome. But and then um, one of the we haven't talked about this character yet who he just mm. captured my heart from is Charles. Uh, oh, first, brother Charles. Brother yeah. Charles first introduced in uh, the beginning of Canticle. Um, he's the constructor of the micro micro servants. And then his, um, his tie in with, with Isaac, especially yeah. in Antiphon when he realizes that Isaac has like a, like a, dis, a defunct like core and he knows that it's going to go out. And then yeah. when you realize what happens with Isaac at the end of the Antiphon, and then ultimately yeah. he makes the ultimate sacrifice of himself. That scene just mm -hmm. really, really got me brother Charles. Um, yeah. Just can you talk about the construction of Charles and how his mm -hmm. impact into the series, it really hit me as one of the great characters. I wanted a fatherly figure for Isaac. Um, and I, Charles made sense. Um, I needed some intrigue at the beginning of Canticle, and it made sense to me that there'd be a mechanical that was programmed with a message from Charles that people think is, you know, a mechanical named Charles, when in reality it's a message that's been sent. Um, that, you know, they discover that there's this missing person that, that may have information that could help. They learn about Sanctorum Lux. Um, Charles is one of the, another, you know, they, they tend to organically emerge for me. And he became one that I also love. Um, he, uh, you know, I was able to use him to process some of the losses in my life because Charles was losing Isaac because they're at the end of Antiphon, you know, it, it, and in hindsight, you should be able to see that what really happened there is that Neb brought Isaac back without knowing he brought Isaac back. Mm -hmm. um, but and, and he refashioned him using the original schematic of the metal servants. Um, right, the Silver Army, which is what the Watcher was. This old, old, old pitted metal man was a, a part of the old Silver Army that came down from the moon, which the Silver Army was just a terraforming. Uh, you know, it was a, the, the, the mechanicals that helped terraform these uh, habitable worlds before humans showed up with their bio ships. So and I got lost again. This is fun, but uh, I, got, I wander. Brother, I wander into the forest of my own story. Uh, brother, brother Charles. His oh, brother Charles. Yeah, he. You know, his death. I'm quoting a an ecstasy song that I fell in love with called "We're All Light." So his last words when he when he saves the day and sacrifices himself for his metal child, uh, his last words are from a um, an ecstasy song. And if you go look up those lyrics, it's kind of an interesting. Uh, concept but um there's a lot of little tiny bits that show like the ship that sailed the moon um that i talk about well that's from a paul simon song called the american tune 
Um, we come on a ship they call the Mayflower. We come in the ship that sailed the moon. We come in the age's most uncertain hour, and we sing an American tune. But uh, Charles was definitely, and I needed, uh, you know, the other thing that I did in this that I don't know happens so much. Most of, I have a vast majority of elderly characters. Rudolfo's in his 40s. Uh, everybody else is in their 60s and 70s. Jin Lee Tam's in her 30s. Um, you know, I mean, Neb is young, Winters is young, but they're the only, they're the only kind of young people, really. Um, everybody else is, you know, Vlad's 72 or so. I mean, he's roughly the same age as Patronus. So. And then we'll just talk about a couple more, a couple more things hmm? for the characters, uh, the, the ending for all of them. Did you know them ahead of time where, where the, the ending was going or did it kind of just, yes. um, okay. I did. I knew my endings probably by, I mean, I knew Rodolfo's ending by the end of Canticle, by the end of Lamentation. Actually, by the end of Lamentation, I probably I knew his. I knew Jin Lee Tam's ending. Her ending was the only one that made sense based on the choices made in Antiphon and Requiem. Let's see. Neb, yeah, I knew. By the time by the time I had them listening to the Silver Crescent in the wastes, I knew that that Neb was going to be standing on the tower. And that, you know, everything was moving. I didn't know all the nuances because I got surprised. Like, I didn't realize, oh, crap, he's stranded in the tower. It's going to have to be Patronus. Oh, wait, Avertal Ka is going to have to help Patronus. Now Patronus is going to die. Oh, no. And so, you know, all these things were happening to me while I'm making the story up. So I didn't ever have a strong sense of Ken, the creator of the story. I had a sense of Ken in the car with the story um with all of the different components constantly asking if we were there yet um and while we all jumble around like a bunch of volkswagen <laughs> in requiem specifically we meet the f first times we actually get to see the the keepers hatch um group with i mean we're first introduced to them in requiem they're kind of like when the description was like kind of like spider like like humans and yeah. one of them helps yeah. patronus by well, we're in the spoiler section, so and yep, the little bundle, bundles him into a cocoon, and he and he witness and Patronus goes through a re rejuvenation, um, yeah. to some point. Um, like he basically I, does the same thing to Patronus in hyperspeed that you know to get that took you know the, all of the all of the genetics to get to the child of promise, you know, to get to breed back into humanity their lost ability, you know, whereas Neb being you know a younger god. You know, he, he's they just had to activate him. And, and that required, you know, wind wear. But yeah, we meet the Keeper's Hatch. We first meet them in my story, The Second Gift Given. The Keeper's Hatch are genetically enhanced humans who've been designed to be able to, you know, they're, they're the maker builders. They, they, you know, they make they can make things with the with the silk. They can build things with their appendages. They're fast. They're they're efficient. Um, they show up when needed. And in this case, the last of them, you know, it's largely been gone at this point. Now, of course, they're all off on these. You know, it's not like they're not anywhere else because this the seeds have been sent and sowed in the darkness. So there will be you know new homes with uh, you know that are that are prepped and ready. <laughs> awesome. That was yeah. That was a great uh, introduction into into the series and. Also, a good introduction was the the Moon Wizard uh, Tower and like the Moon Wizard Gate, and we find out we first see it. I think it's not the actual Moon Wizard Tower; it's kind of like a gateway on. Uh, oh, the Moon Wizard's less, ladder, which ladder. is really that, that, yeah, which right. is really just a bunch of it's like a bunch of stones coming up out of the ocean. But if you sail between them when it's turned on, yeah, you come out the other side up on the moon. Yeah, and we first get that through um, Vlad. 
Vlad's point of view uh, in Antiphon. Yeah. And then, you know, after, as we get to Requiem, we see what, how that works. And then in him, it just it goes crazy with the, tr- yeah. the transportation back, back and forth. Back and I, forth. I needed a method of transportation other than this kind of lackadaisical, we're going to sail to the moon on a boat because we're humans and we can. I needed something that was more, you know, close to an F-22 fighter plane. Um, so I had kin dragons um, right. that were, you know, hidden away, you know, up on the moon for until such time as a new administrator was selected for what had been called the Moon Wizard's Tower. But now we know it's the first home temple and that it's a structure created the, to point back to where the, the people first came from. So <laughs> and kind yeah. of a command center of sorts for the new colony. Command center on on the moon to for mm-hmm. for new colony. Neb takes up takes up the reins and his his storyline and in him is just wild it's action all the time. Stuff in the back of his mind. He needs to get the he needs to get the the wizard staff from from Vlad, but Vlad's doing his own thing with trying yep. to keep Jacob and the the Crimson Empress from Jin, and then he gets and he gets messed up into this whole oh. So much moving back and forth. I couldn't keep my head straight. There's a lot. But if you look at each book, really, each character has about a novella's worth of story in each book. Isn't that interesting? They're, you know, a big novel, 145,000 pages, 165 for him. But it's broken up with six, you know, different characters um, getting each tiny little pieces. So, um, but yeah, it's, I'm still kind of astonished. I've, you know, I went back and listened to the whole thing from soup to nuts, beginning to end. And I cried in all the right places and I laughed in all the right places and it didn't feel like my own work, and which is nice. Um, it was, uh, I'm pretty proud of it. Uh, and it does what I wanted it to do. It says, you know, we humans are vastly capable of good or evil using our imaginations. And that we can, we can solve our problems or we can create more. And I think my series kind of hits on that while at the same time lifting up important things like, you know, love and trust and, you know, finding family in the ruins of loss. Yeah, it touches on all of those, all those themes. And it just gives you a very powerful ending and very powerful scenes throughout the whole of this series that I will never forget, especially um, maybe not this year, but I'll definitely be doing a reread of the series. Hopefully I can get a read along going on that one because it's a series everyone should at least uh investigate it's something so original and something that it's outside the scope of what i thought you could bring into a fantasy sci-fi genre blender yes it is a science science fiction but yeah, but it's, it's a, a fantasy, fantasy driven i mean it's fantasy like bradbury fantasy right for Brad- science fiction like bradbury science fiction which is more of a fantasy type science fiction that relies on you know and i'm relying on a lot of the social construction i'm relying on you know, beliefs within cultures that have evolved over, you know, and then when we get to the end and discover that part of it is just good old fashioned vendetta blood feud. And, and the other part of it is a group of people who believe in the human vision who want to put us back into space and the Andrew Francines, you know, being a secular order using religious tropes to protect knowledge, the Azirites being a religious order using, you know, sacrifice and blood rituals to, toe the line and create and bring create basically you know their version of a quitsack satirac right they, they get the child of promise and the crimson empress together so that they basically have dominion over the planet again 
Um, so there's also a little of my Dominion theology in there um, from the old days. Just just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I I and I love that you fell into it and found it. It's been it's good for my heart. And my hope is that at some point there'll be enough interest that we'll see a resurgence. Um, I don't know that I'll, I mean, things could slow down and I could find myself really wanting to write another series of novels in that world. But it's that the greatest incentive ever will end up being a group of people clamoring for it. Um, because then suddenly I feel beholding to people and wanting to, you know, I, I took the dare. Somebody else could come along and dare me and you never know. Well, Janny dared me to finish the series, and I'm so glad that I did. It's one of the it's one of the most original novels I've ever, uh, most original series I've ever come across, and it's one that I will continue to be revisiting in the in the future. So, thank you so much for uh, putting the perseverance to go through it. And I know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of backstory into the construction of these novels, and persevered and the community is a better place for it. So thank you so much. Well, I, I appreciate it. And I love that people are still reading them. I, uh, I really, uh, I wish I could say that I enjoyed writing them, but I did enjoy writing the first half of Canticle. And that was nice to remember. And, and thank you for putting some light on this old work of mine. I uh, always around to talk about it. If you ever, uh, if you want to do your rereads and uh, bring a group in, I'd be, I'd be down for a little panel or a little Q and a with, with a crowd. Uh, whatever is helpful to you and, and fun. Awesome. So before we wrap up, why don't we tell the uh, listeners where they can find you, they can find your books and what to look out for in the future of any of your short stories. Um, you can find me at kenskolls.com and uh, you can find my music there as, as well as links to my books and, and uh, stories. I have a fourth short story collection that'll probably be out in the next few years. Um, I'm in an anthology now out with Bain called uh, high noon uh, on uh Proxima B. And um, you can also find my music if you're interested out on uh, Spotify or, or Apple. Um, I've got a live album and I've got my first studio release uh, out right now. I'll have uh, more studio releases dropping over the next couple of months. Um, and let's see, am I going to be anywhere? I'm going to be briefly at NorwestCon. Um, I haven't done con conventions in years, but I'm going to be ghosting NorwestCon. So if there are people out there that want to grab time with me, I'll be up in Seattle for a day and a night uh, catching up with friends at the bar. Oh, hopefully we get to see each other uh, very, very soon. So for those of you who have loved this series uh, as much as uh, I have, feel free to uh, reach out to me, reach out to Ken, post a review, give give good ratings. It helps out everybody a lot and want to get this series into many hands. So thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great time and let's do this again sometime. You bet. Thank you. All right. Cheers, everybody.